Buenos dias a todos. I gotta start starting, or I have to stop starting all of these in Spanish. It's a miércoles? Es miércoles, sí. el 4 de septiembre. Yes, sir. <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Business Casual. We took a little mini break last Friday because it was long Labor Day weekend. We had Friday off. It was glorious. Um, but now we're back in action. Unfortunately, you're not getting me this Friday either because I'm going to be in Vegas, not partying, Ooh, doing work. Not partying. <laughs> and that'll be fun. We're going to be chatting a little bit more about that later. Um, yeah, Tyler, how's your morning so far? My morning has been uh, great so far, Daniel. It's weird it's Wednesday, right? Like on a holiday week, doesn't it kind of uh, almost weird you out a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nice, though. I mean, the four-day week is always welcomed. And the three-day weekend is also always welcomed. I don't know. Do you do you like it when it's Monday off and then you get the four-day week like that? Or do you like it when it's Friday off, you get the four-day week up front, then the three-day weekend, you know? That's a good question. I think I would rather have... I think I would rather have Friday off, actually. I'm the other way. Really? See, I think I'd rather have the three-day weekend, and then as a treat, you then also get the shortened week after. It's like... We're going to ease you back in. Okay. I don't know. I could, I could see that. I don't know. It's just that so much of my week is thrown off when you have the first day off, right? Like, uh, our, our boss, Ben, came in here earlier, and he was like, oh, hey, you know, what's going on? I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's business casual today. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Wednesday. He's like, oh, yeah, my body thinks it's Tuesday. Right. And I'm with you. Like, it, it it's it's kind of a weird thing when that happens, I guess. And so I kind of prefer to have like that anticipation of like, oh yeah, I got Friday off. Right. You know what I mean? I feel that. Though I feel like at market scale specifically, since we get a little go home every now and then, you know, our Fridays are sometimes short. I feel like Friday's always approached a little differently anyways. So when you get that Monday off, it's like, wow. Monday. (laughs) Wow. It's huge. (laughs) It's huge. Speaking of huge, the Dow is down over a full percentage point this morning, down 285 points. And they will start the day at 26,118 points. The NASDAQ also down over a point, losing 88.72 points, down 1.11 points. The price of oil is up $2, uh, excuse me, 2% up to $55.04 a barrel. We're going to get a little bit more into uh, the price of oil and kind of what hurricanes and natural disasters do to the price of oil coming up here in just a little bit. We're going to be talking to Tim Snyder. He's an expert on all things oil and gas, and he's the president of Matador Economics. And so Mm. he's going to join us to talk a little bit more about that. Also coming up on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about robots and how they're driving a specific uh, industry forward at the moment. All righty. We're also going to preview InterDrone, which yes, sir. is why you are going out to Vegas Oh yeah, and why you are so excited here on this year Wednesday. I sure am. It's going to be a fun Thursday and a fun Friday covering the international future of drones. But again, we'll get into that later. I'm excited about that. Hey, Daniel, on this day, September 4th in 1998, Google was formally incorporated by larry page and sergey brin the uh, two students at stanford university wow Did I say his name even remotely remotely right sergey sergey brin no probably sergey sergey Ser- like sergey sergey yeah uh-huh. sergey yeah brin. that two feels st- right to me 1998 wow like i can remember 1998 it's a weird thing 
It hmm. got all of us away from using Ask Jeeves back then. Yeah, I was three in 1998. I don't know. I don't remember a lot. That's neat. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, being in a little apartment and being a little toddler. But, yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. Now, what, we're 20-plus years removed from that, yep. and Google is, you know, along with, like, Amazon, is, like, leading the world as one of the largest businesses ever. I mean, imagine, I don't know, I, I just can't even fathom what it must be like to operate something that has now become the colloquial term for look something up on the internet. Yeah, yeah. It's, hey, Google that. You know what I mean? It's 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 the Kleenex phenomenon. We're like, yeah. Kleenex is not the product, it's the brand, but it, the two are so uh, inextricably linked that you can't actually kind of separate them. You say, do you want a Kleenex? Even if it's not Kleenex brand, and so, like, when you go to search <laughs> something on the internet, you're gonna Google it, right? Even if you use Bing or whatever else, which I don't, who I don't know anybody Bing? who does. Does anybody still use Yahoo anymore? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I I really would love to see some numbers on what the breakdown is for people using anything other than Google. Still, I mean, okay, there's Safari, but when you plug into Safari, you're plugging into Google, you know. So, yeah. like, I I don't know. It's it's nutty. Got to give it to Larry and Sergey. Got to give it to those guys. They did something right. <laughs> All right, Daniel, uh, let's talk a little bit more. You mentioned Amazon a second ago. I did. And I want to bring up a story that I came across on the Dallas Morning News, obviously our local paper here in Dallas, but uh, affects the entire country because uh, the story goes on to talk about how four, over 400 law enforcement agencies have partnered with, previously mentioned, Amazon-owned Ring, so the doorbell kind of security, home security yeah, devices, including over two dozen in North Texas. So that's that's kind of the subheadline. Now, what's happening is police departments are partnering with Ring to get access to its social media app called Neighbors, and through that app, they can request footage from residents who have Ring devices. Mm. So, in the investigation of a crime, let's say, let's say maybe something happened outside your house, but you weren't involved, they can use this app to request footage from your Ring doorbell. To see what happened outside in front of your house, basically. Hmm. What do you think about that? Just general premise. How do we feel about this? I mean, I personally have some thoughts on it. I mean, I I don't know. It's not the most exciting thing for me. Um, But I think it's, from a business perspective, a huge market. I mean, I think it just brings the conversation around to law enforcement agencies and the entire. I, I guess, like, the entire organizational structure of law enforcement spends a lot of money. Right. And they have to invest in a lot of technologies and a lot of um, supplemental tools and materials and things like this. Uh, I mean, in 2017 alone, budgets for some of our biggest cities in the United States ranged from Orlando's, like, $150 million mm-hmm. to New York City's $4.89 billion on policing budgets. Which is a lot of money. Right. I mean, obviously, some of that's going to salary. Some of that's going to literal operational, like, policing. But a lot of that money also gets funded back into equipment upgrades and um, purchasing tools like, you know, I'm not sure if there was any money actually spent in this negotiation process with Ring. But... I think it just goes to show there is a market for businesses to obviously sell to law enforcement agencies. So I think it's probably a, a bright side to those kinds of companies saying, wow, check this out, a unique opportunity to partner with law enforcement agencies across the country. This is a great business opportunity. That's a good point. I hadn't thought necessarily about it from Amazon's perspective of 
oh, look, like this is a market we can tap into. Right. And uh, let's see, Google owns Nest, right, which also has a doorbell-type device. So if Amazon beats kind of uh, Google to the punch at this, that's definitely a win in their column, right? Like if there's a large untapped market of municipalities and law enforcement agencies, uh, tap that market, get that money, I suppose. Exactly. And Google and Amazon are at each other's throat always. Uh, I mean, we talked about it on this show, even with our breakdown of Google Shopping's new hub, that they're trying to keep traffic on Google and keep it away from people going to Google to search Amazon and then going to Amazon to shop. Right. So it's it's pretty interesting. Um, and then I just think beyond that, the whole concept of um, a company using this kind of technology to partner with law enforcement agencies, I think it brings up similar privacy concerns that you see um, drone companies have to deal with. And this is something that I'll preview a little bit when we talk about Interdrone, then I'll further talk about at Interdrone. Sure. But the public perception around drones and around technology in law enforcement's hands is not always a positive one. Right. And there is a lot of PR and marketing that has to go into convincing a community that you using this technology f- to help law enforcement is a benefit to your community. It's helpful true. for your community. And it goes as far as to Amazon and Ring actually assisting law enforcement agencies on how to communicate to people that just live in homes that have Ring mm-hmm. on like how to talk to them to get them to share this footage with you. Right. Which on one hand you might say, okay, that's like, wow, they're helping train them to use better language, to get better use out of this technology. It's going to be helpful for those people. But on the other hand, it's also like, Oh, okay, so basically it's encouraging handing over footage to a database that there isn't a lot of, um, like, statute of limitations on. Right now, internal yeah. documents from Ring, this is from a CNET article, um, reviewed by CNET, show that police are allowed to pass Ring videos around to other law enforcement agencies and keep the clips for as long as they wish. So there isn't really, like, a... And that's not always necessarily a bad thing, but it goes it, – it brings the conversation back around to there is now going to be a database of mm-hmm. people's ring footage. And do consumers want that? I don't know. I think no, but we also sign off on our data being used on every single social media site. That's a good point. And whenever we're online – I think we are a little naive to how much information is being pulled from our time online and being used for marketing, being used for research, being used for whatever targeted ads. It it does not stop. And so this just feels like a more, I don't know, like organized, structural, like the police are going to have your footage, right? And like I think that's scary to some people. Um, So I think if Amazon and Ring and police agencies want to launch this with success, I think they're going to need to really show that we're using this for the public benefit. We're not trying to build a giant database of footage from people's homes for whatever reason. You know, you have the right not to share this. You don't have to share this. Like, I think they really need to be forthcoming um, with people because... I just think whenever you're dealing with privacy with law enforcement agencies, there's just some trickiness 
I absolutely agree. I think that on the front side, you think this is a great idea, but you begin to think about what you're opening yourself up to on on the back end. And I, I do understand the, the various privacy concerns that people could have there. Yeah. So that's definitely something to think about. All right. One of the other things we wanted to discuss this morning is that in the industrial economy, when it comes to uh, that sector of the economy, it's mainly stagnated over the last several years. Uh, manufacturing uh, saw contraction for the first time uh, since 2017, and they were looking at this industry and kind of trying to find, okay, where are the positives? And the one major positive aspect of this industry right now is robots and robotics. Hmm. The U.S.-China trade war, along with the slowing global uh, economic activity, has really caused industrial investors to kind of sweat quite a bit. Sure. But the robotic industry... Excuse me, the Robotic Industries Association, or the RIA, recently released second quarter industry growth figures, and the numbers are kind of off the charts, Daniel. North American companies ordered 8,572 industrial robots valued at $446 million. Sheesh. That represents a growth of 19.2% in the number of robots and a 0.6% boost in the dollars compared. Now, the reason that there's such a big difference there is that... Um, Smaller robots are being ordered uh, more and more often, including collaborative robots called cobots designed to work safely beside humans. And that aspect of the industry is really growing fairly rapidly. So this is hmm. uh, this is an interesting phenomenon to me. It's not kind of the large-scale robots, the large-scale kind of robotics that we're seeing. It's a lot of kind of smaller, but the number of them has drastically increased recently. So I'm curious to see what this does in various industries moving forward and what a trend this becomes as we continue to see more and more robots kind of begin to flood the marketplace. Yeah, it's interesting that the the growth is coming with smaller collaborative robots, right? Mm -hmm. Not the existential threat of replacing the human workforce with robots, sure. but instead maybe easing us towards you know a more automated reality with some of these collaborative robots it's it's cool to see um and i don't think it's a surprise that the industrial sector is seeing uh this much growth and success with robots because i think it's the no-brainer uh i think when you deal with retail and you deal with fast food and replacing people with um you know robot kiosks or whatever i think uh People are a little more weary of that, and it's like, oh, well, you know, not getting rid of the human touch point entirely, whatever. Um, but I think when you get into the industrial sector, on one hand, you have more dangerous work, which, sure. you know, you're putting a robot there instead, which is probably a good thing. Um, but also, industrial work replaced by robots actually, I think, opens a lot of doors for people in those sectors to level up their careers. Absolutely. And again, this needs to be partnered with companies and organizations providing the training and the transition for these workers to not just be replaced and left out to dry. But with uh, robotics entering the space like this with these numbers, which uh, I agree are pretty nuts, um, it leaves an opportunity for these professionals to become more data-focused, mm -hmm. more analytics-focused, more uh, robotics-focused, and that takes a lot of training and skill, but the work is more rewarding, and definitely if this is the trend that we're seeing, it's going to be more, um, mm, losing the word, more substantial, more long-lasting. Absolutely. You know? So it's, it's cool to see. It's definitely exciting. It absolutely is. Well, we're going to step aside take a 30-second break. When we get back, we'll be talking to Tim Snyder, the president of Matador Economics, about the impact of severe weather 
on the price of oil and uh, much, much more. So stick around. That is coming up right here after the break. Boom. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news. You're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to MarketScale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right, Daniel, we are back. We have Tim Snyder on the line. He's the president of Matador Economics, and he's an oil and gas industry expert. Tim, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. So we are taking a look right now at the impact that Hurricane Dorian can have uh, just on the oil and gas industry there over on the East Coast. Now, we know Hurricane Dorian was at one point a uh, a Category 5 storm. Tim, just kind of give us a a brief, uh, I I suppose, overview of the situation. What impact can a hurricane like Hurricane Dorian have on fuel prices up and down the East Coast? Oh, it could be devastating. Uh, The the biggest issue we're looking at, and and first and foremost, as you have to understand, we as you just said, we could have seen a Category 5 hit in mid-central uh, Florida coast, uh, and it could have had devastating effects not only on the land and the buildings and everything else that's there, but the pipelines and the fuel and trying to get gas down there. And and uh, even, that, and I say gas as in gasoline and diesel, uh, uh, natural gas that we have, and that's the biggest, the biggest issue that we were looking at is we had to position, even though that storm did not come, a, did not come ashore, uh, and it did move. It kind of went right up the central coast and, and turned north. Mm-hmm. Uh, storms do that. But what we do, especially this time of year, and just so you guys know and your listeners uh, understand today as we sit here looking at this, not only do we have Dorian on the east coast with Fernand, who just uh, it's about to cross into the northern Mexico area. is going to affect the, uh, the Rio Grande Valley. It's a tropical storm with uh, – uh, winds probably in the 35 to 45 mile an hour range. We've got Gabrielle, another tropical storm out in the uh, Atlantic, and two other uh, tropical waves that are forming and developing. So this is a very active time. So what we have to do in the oil and gas industry is we position ourselves. We get ready so we can move assets and be able to place assets quickly and get them, first of all, out of harm's way. And second of all, we have to be able to put them back into play as soon as possible. So we do a whole lot of positioning. So when that happens, what does that do to oil production, and how does that affect the price of oil on kind of on a global stage? Well, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of global production mm-hmm. uh, uh, oil production um, off the East Coast, so we're not really affected by that so much as we are. Her, uh, the tropical storm Fernand is down in the uh, that came across and formed in the Gulf of Mexico. We pull people off rigs, we stop production, we just shut everything down uh, until the until the storm passes, uh, and then we get back out. So what that'll do is drop our production. You know, last week, according to the Energy Information Agency, we produced on a national level a record 12.5 million barrels per day uh, in the continental United States. And so when you see us come off, uh, especially offshore, and then we start to shut things down, in the Southern Eagle Ford and some of those things, it, it'll have an effect on production. And when production comes off, sometimes prices go up. 
We add a layer of risk, and that's the reason you're seeing prices up a little bit today, probably 10 cents a gallon around the DFW area. Mm -hmm. So I think what is um, particularly devastating about Dorian that we've seen is that it kind of parked itself, right? And um, when you deal with a tornado, let's say, um, and most of these hurricanes or tropical storms, they stay on a steady path, they move, and those winds, though devastating, uh, move on. In this case, Dorian stayed totally put for hours over the Bahamas, and that caused a lot of infrastructure damage to that region. Now, looking back to oil rigs, uh, let's say a tropical storm passes over several oil rigs, right? And it, it follows a similar path in that it decides to take a park for hours and hours and you've got these devastating winds plowing into oil rigs what is the infrastructure like of these uh, of these rigs are they capable of withstanding that kind of storm um you know how have they dealt with damages in the past and any reparations that might have to come around yeah you got to understand these these rigs are built for for the winds the winds are not the problem the, the it's the massive waves uh about 11 years ago, I took a cruise out of Galveston, and we actually went through the edge of a hurricane. We had seas that were, that were you know, had, we had waves that were probably uh, 40 feet, I think, the last I saw before. They shut the system down and stopped telling us how strong the winds were and how tall the seas were. Uh, we had 40 and 50 uh, foot waves that the, that the ship, the cruise ship, was crashing through and and so it's not so much the winds that we were dealing with a 50 mile an hour wind is not that big a deal or a 70 mile an hour wind is not that big a deal but a 50 foot wave is a big deal and it takes a beating that's why they shut these wells down they lower production to where uh, to, it, to where it just absolutely does not produce and they do not give uh, the ability for those uh rigs to you know, maybe the pipe to break or any of those kinds of things. They're built for that sort of stability. They can handle that sort of thing. Now, you know, staying on top of it is is really not the issue. The biggest danger we have is from a fast-moving storm. And remember, tropical storms and hurricanes, the reason they use this, and this is something that people need to understand, the reason that they used to use the uh, only the female names was the fact that it was supposed to be unpredictable like a female. That's not (laughs) being pejorative and not being sexist at all. That's just the the origin of what we had. And these storms do not take a straight path. Uh, They do not do what's predicted. What they do is what's unpredictable. That's exactly what Dorian did. Now, how does that affect prices? Markets don't like things that are not predictable so when uh when we get into a situation where we've got storms like this coming up right now with uh, one hurricane that's a cat two two tropical storms and two uh, uh, tropical depressions we add a layer of risk on the prices because we don't know where we're going to get hit we just know we're probably going to get hit That's absolutely right. Uh, Tim Snyder, the president of Matador Economics, joining us this morning to talk about the impact of Hurricane Dorian as well as other storms and what that does to the oil and gas industry. Tim, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You bet. It's been my pleasure to talk to you guys again. All right. Thank you so much. That is Tim Snyder. I really appreciated his insight there. That was uh, yeah. really, really interesting, really enlightening, just as far as the impact that these storms have. I'm also curious now about all of the logistics that goes into 
moving product and that sort of thing. Like what he talked about there at the beginning, that they mobilize pretty quickly when they see a storm like this on the horizon. Right. They really do a lot to try to kind of, I, I suppose, limit the damage that can come from a storm like this. Well, and I'm sure this obviously is not the first time they've had to deal with a storm affecting uh, global oil prices. So though he um, you know, commented on the fact that um, price is affected because of the unpredictability and the risk that comes along with these storms, we always see that fluctuate again, you know, and it, it does go back down eventually. It's not like it just stays high forever now because right. Hurricane Dorian now will f- f- forever change the price of oil. It's not really like that. So um, it's, I think, frustrating in the short term, obviously devastating to the people in those regions, to the production of uh, oil on mm-hmm. not necessarily a global scale for this storm. But, um, yeah, it's still a difficult thing to manage. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Hurricane Dorian in today's... You just made the list! The short list. Boom. Presented by Jeffrey Short. Here we go. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeffrey Short, and this is the short list for Wednesday, September 4th. Hurricane Dorian has caused widespread evacuations across the southeast United States, and the second strongest Atlantic storm on record may come with a hefty price tag for insurance providers. Analysts at UBS say the storm could cause as much as $25 billion in insurance industry losses. Overall, the investment bank estimates that 2019 will be responsible for approximately $70 billion in natural catastrophe losses for insurers. On a lighter note, the price tag for sports franchises has also been heavy in recent years, and big tech companies bidding on broadcast rights could pump more money into professional leagues. Here's what former National Basketball Association Commissioner David Stern told Bloomberg about the future of sports rights. I think the fangs are going to realize that the way you get and keep viewers is with sports rights. And I think they sat on the sidelines for the last round of sports negotiations, but now they're busy. Stern is not alone either. Current National Football League Commissioner Roger Goodell admitted in a recent press conference that big tech companies are already players in current broadcast negotiations. That's what's happening in the world of B2B today. I'm MarketScale Digital Editor Jeffrey Short. You just made the list! The short list. There's that short list, Daniel. Mm. I always love hearing Jeffrey's voice in the morning. That juicy, juicy short list. <laughs> Talking about insurance fallout from Hurricane Dorian, as well as the future of sports broadcast rights, something very, very near and dear to my heart. Something else near and dear to my heart is Interdrone. Oh, really? It is. You, you wake up in a cold sweat thinking about Interdrone? You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. No, I'm actually a uh, cold sweat of jealousy because you are going to Interdrone. You are leaving uh, tomorrow? I am. I believe. Uh, no, Las tonight. Vegas. Tonight for Las Vegas. Tonight. I love Las Vegas. All right. So you're going out to uh, Las Vegas for Interdrome. Kind of give us the give us the uh, ten thousand foot view, and then we'll kind of narrow down in on, sure. some, uh, on some themes and that sort of thing. So I was at Interdrome last year, um, to Interdrome 2018, and the conversation then was still very much let's convince the world drones are not toys; they're tools. Right. That was still a big talking point. I feel like this year, based on looking at the keynote speakers, the general presentations, who's presenting there, I think we're starting to wean ourselves off of that mindset Okay. Um, in a good way, in that I think public perception, business perception around the impact of drones 
is starting to leave a mark. People are starting to realize that, yeah, okay, drones are extremely useful. They are helpful. They are not just fun flyover toys. They can change my business. Mm -hmm. They can change law enforcement. They can change emergency response. All that good stuff. Agricultural services. Um, And so now I think the conversation for Interdrone 2019 is more about how should the industry further improve on these integrations and on the business models, the uh, business strategies behind drones and behind drone innovations. Interesting. Which is really exciting. Um, and I think it's a great place for drones to be because they're not having to reprove themselves. They're kind of starting to get baked into these different industries and these different markets. And so now they have a chance to, within those markets, innovate and create um, more solutions that are market-specific. So that's really exciting. That's really fascinating. So you said you went last year for MarketScale, and we're going again this year. What kind of presence uh, is, is MarketScale going to have out there at this uh, at, at Interjone in Las Vegas? So last year we just had a side table with a banner. I had my uh, podcast set up, and we did um, some podcasts from the floor. Okay. It was successful. Uh, it was a good time. But we partnered specifically with Interdrone this time to get our own booth and to be the media presence at the show. We're not the only media company there. I mean, there are some drone-specific blogs and magazines and publications that will be there, but we have our own booth. We've got live video broadcasting we're going to be doing. We've got podcasts at the top of every hour. We're going to be doing shorter interviews in front of our market scale and inner drone video wall. We've got the full setup going this time. It's our first time doing this kind of full-blown setup at a trade show. Wow. And I think it's only the beginning. I think this is the beginning of uh, many partnerships and many excursions where we are in the mix of the actual show. That's pretty exciting. It's really, really dope. And I am really excited for the people we've got lined up. Yeah, who are you most excited to talk to? I mean, it's kind of hard to lock down because everyone that we've got, is bringing a different perspective yeah. to the drone conversation, and everyone has their own venue. So, for example, we're going to be chatting drone business models mm-hmm. with DroneUp. We're mm-hmm. going to be chatting where drones fit into law enforcement, that same kind of privacy conversation we were having. Sure. I'm going to be chatting with DroneSense about that. I'm going to be chatting FAA regulation expansion with DJI, mm-hmm. hopefully with a representative from the FAA itself. That would be interesting. Fingers crossed on that coming yeah. together. Um, I'm going to be chatting with the only person to ever go to space and summit Mount Everest, which is pretty nuts. That is He's insane. now a drone tech CEO trying to revolutionize controllers for commercial drone pilots. So we are getting big players there. We're getting people that are changing the technology, the conversations, the regulations, the businesses behind drones on an international scale, um, and the interviews we have lined up are really getting me amped. I'm pretty pretty stoked about it. Yeah, it's going to so, be a good time. So people that want to follow along can obviously go to marketscale.com slash industries, but you, as you said, kind of um, the drone industry, I suppose, kind of fits neatly into different industries, right? It sure like does. Food and beverage, you know, whether it's you know farming and agriculture or with law enforcement. So uh, I feel like the coverage is going to be decently spread out across a number of different industries for market scale. And so one of the better ways to do it would be to go follow us on social media. I would say. I agree. You can find us on Twitter at Market Scale. You can also follow along our software and technology Twitter, which I think is where the majority of this is going to be. Yep. That's at TechMKSL. 
at TechMKSL. Mm-hmm. So Twitter at MarketScale, Twitter at TechMKSL, but also follow us on LinkedIn because if everything goes according to plan, we will be broadcasting some of those podcasts live, not only on our site, but also through LinkedIn. So you can follow along and watch my conversations live. Hopefully I'm not tripping up all over my words, but hey, I'm the voice of B2B. You're the so voice we're, of B2B. <laughs> we're we're going to be on point. I'm ready. I'm excited. Tyler, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one, and we're done for today. We're done, Zo. Peace, everyone. We'll chat again on Friday. We'll see you next time on Business Casual. I'm Tyler Kern. I'm Daniel Litwin. See Adios. Ya.